It's great to see you. My name's Neil. I'm married to Kate. Together we we are the pastors here at the Southwest London Vineyard. As Kate said earlier, if you're new here or visiting, you're incredibly welcome. And uh, it's really, really great to see you here. We're in the middle of uh, doing a series that we've been doing over the last few weeks, looking at we're kind of calling it the vineyard, vineyard DNA. Uh, it's, it's essentially some of the things that are important to us here in the vineyard. And this morning we're going to look at being passionate pursuers of Jesus. Doreen uh, is a wonderful example of what being a passionate pursuer of Jesus looks like. And so we're going to look at being passionate pursuers of Jesus, or to use a, both a biblical and a vineyard expression, being fools for Christ. Uh, John Wimber, who God used to start this family of churches called the Vineyard, he he tells the story of how he came to faith in Jesus. And um, this is part, I just want to show you a very, very short video in a second. This is part, a very short extract from his story about how he came uh, to Jesus. So uh, I just thought you might like this. It's very short. And here comes this guy walking along, and he's got one of these signs, like an Eat at Joe's type of sign, you know, front and back. And on the front it said, I am a fool for Christ. And on the back it said, whose fool are you? Well, when I saw it at the time, I thought, oh, weird religious weirdo, you know, he went by. But here I am, all these years later, I'm kneeling on my friend's living room floor. I'm sobbing. I'm suddenly realized that I'm making a complete fool of myself. And I, said, and I remember that thing. I thought, that's it. That's it. I'm going to be his fool. That's it. And I resolved in my heart at that moment that from that point out, I was going to do the foolish thing in the eyes of the world. There you go. That was John Wimber, not Grizzly Adams. Uh, Now, Paul puts it like this in his letter to the church in Corinth, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ. And the reality is that remains true for any of us who have encountered the wonderful person of Jesus and we've given our lives over to him. Uh, Way back in uh, uh, 1893, there was a a world fair in Chicago and it was on for six months. And during the six months that it was on, I estimated that over 21 million people went to visit this world fair. Fair and, and one of the features of this World Fair was something called the World Parliament of Religion. And the idea was that it was going to bring together people of different faiths, different religions, into some kind of uh, mutual sort of tolerance and, and, and affirmation. Now, some of the church leaders in Chicago at the time, uh, they weren't too happy about this idea. And so they set about, they determined to, to start protests against it. And what they wanted to do, they wanted to kind of give substance to their displeasure. And so what they did is they sought out one of the most famous preachers uh, of the era in the U.S. at the time, D.L. Moody. And he's kind of a bit like the sort of Billy Graham of his day. And basically what they wanted Moody to do was to take a stand against the World Parliament of Religions, uh, which in their opinion was promoting other religions and um, they didn't want that. They didn't like that. And Moody, quite sensibly and quite rightly, in my humble opinion, he refused to join them in their protest. And instead, what he did was he rented a whole bunch of theaters across the city. And he set up like preaching posts all around the city of 
Chicago. And what he said was, let's make Jesus so attractive that people will want to turn to him. And that was an approach that worked incredibly well. And thousands and thousands of visitors to this World Fair gave their lives to Jesus and became passionate pursuers of Jesus, became fools for Christ. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. But before we get to the text, which should come up behind me, I just want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, This is uh, another one of those letters written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to the church in Colossae. And like uh, many cities in the first century, people in the city worshipped a whole kind of range, a panoply of different gods and goddesses. The archaeologists have done their digging and they found evidence that people worshipped um, the Greek god Isis and Artemis and Zeus and Helios, the sun god, and like a whole bunch of other gods and goddesses. And alongside all of this, there was all these different kinds of magical practices and astrology and all kinds of strange and wonderful stuff going on. And it was a veritable religious smorgasbord. Um, And so when you're kind of looking at that context, you're thinking, well, so how does Paul encourage this fledgling church to carry itself in the midst of all of this religious pluralism? You know, does he kind of advise, does he encourage some kind of all-out attack to denounce all these other religions and all these other practices? You know, does he tell everyone in the church, you know, go and spend countless hours crying out and engaging in some kind of uh, exotic spiritual warfare, calling out to the spirits in the heavenly places? He doesn't, he doesn't do that at all. Very much like Moody, some sort of how many hundred years later, Paul basically is saying that, you know, all that, all that needs to be done is to make Jesus, Jesus so attractive that people will be drawn to him, irrespective of all the very many religions and spiritualities that were being offered in the marketplace. Here we are in 21st century London, and in many ways we face some of the similar challenges uh, of the first century Colossae. We, We all know and love people who practice all kinds of different approaches to faith. And one of the questions, I guess, is, you know, how should we as followers of Jesus respond to that? What if anything, should we be doing about that? You know, should we go on the attack? Should we, I don't know, launch some kind of social media campaign or take to the streets or whatever? Of course not. You know, what Paul did, what Moody did, was simply to share the person of Jesus in such an attractive way, in such a winsome way, in such a compelling and quite simply honest way that men and women, irrespective of their religious background or none, might encounter him and give their lives over to him, becoming passionate pursuers of Jesus, fools for Christ. And this morning's text that we're going to have a look at, I think, gives us a whole bunch of reasons as to why it is that Jesus is so attractive, which is what compels us to become passionate pursuers of Jesus and very, very gladly become fools for Christ. So let's have a look at Colossians 1, starting in, chapter, in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
and he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Such an utterly uh, beautiful piece and passage of scripture. And it, it reminds us, I think, firstly, that you know, we passionately pursue Jesus. We become fools for Christ uh, because Jesus is sufficient for all things. Jesus is sufficient for all things. In these uh, five verses or so, Paul mentions the word um, all or every like eight times. He uses this word all over and over again because he's basically, it's really simple. He's simply saying, Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. We really don't need to add anything to Jesus. He is enough. All we need is Jesus. As Dorian prayed, you know, thank you for Jesus. It's really that simple. There's a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis' book called The Screwtoke Letters, and um, the book is essentially a, um, a senior devil is giving lessons to a junior devil in the art of how to tempt Christians, tempt and distract Christians. And C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is, is that it's merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if people become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychical research. Christianity and, this is C.S. Lewis, not me, vegetarianism. Peace to all vegetarians. Um, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. And in many ways, Paul's letter to the Colossians is, is, is Paul's sort of rejection of Christianity and you know, we could easily title the book of Colossians simply Jesus, or Jesus plus nothing. And the reason Jesus is sufficient, the reason he is ultimately all that we need, no matter who we are, no matter what our situation, is because Jesus is supreme over all things. We passionately pursue Jesus. We become fools for Christ because Jesus is supreme over all. If we were to break down this passage, uh, it falls neatly into two sections, which is very kind of Paul. In verses uh, 15 to 17, it's like Paul is celebrating Jesus being supreme over creation. And then in verses 18 to 20, Paul celebrates Jesus as being supreme over new creation. Uh, another way of putting it would be in verses 15 to 17, Jesus is supreme over the universe. And then in verses 18 to 20, Jesus is supreme over the new creation or the church as the new creation. However we put it, the simple truth of the matter is that Jesus is supreme over all. Jesus is supreme over the material world. Jesus is supreme over the spiritual world. Jesus is the creator of the world and the redeemer of the world. And so in other words, 
Paul's basically rejecting, you know, that division that we often make like in our Christian faith um, between the sort of sacred on the one hand and the secular on the other, sort of I don't know, religious and non-religious, although that's not quite the same. You know, we'll say, you know, well, I think about Jesus, you know, and I'm sort of here at church, maybe, or, you know, or maybe when I'm at a small group and I'm not too distracted by what's going on on my phone or whatever, but work, you know, I don't know, thinking about Jesus at work, not so much. Uh, I mean, work, work's the real world, after all, and, you know, it's kind of dog-eat-dog dog and KPIs and bottom lines and stuff like that. And so Christianity and the workplace, you know, not so much. Sundays, maybe, a bit of Sunday. I can kind of, yeah, I can, I can sort of do for Jesus. Um, but, you know, the rest of the week, it's kind of, it's kind of like me time, really. Remember how many times Paul repeats the word all in these five verses? He repeats them like eight times. And you know what the word all means in the original Greek? It means all. It's a really, it's a, it was a tricky translation, but I got to the bottom of it. Jesus is supreme over all. All. I'm, I don't know what else to say. One of the very many things that's so attractive and so compelling about Jesus is the fact that Jesus is supreme over all. And it's his will and it's his opinion, it's his plans and it's his purposes that are to be supreme over all of our lives. All is basically what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We become his followers when we finally realize that following Jesus means that he is Lord of all of our lives. Our careers, our decisions, our relationships, our hopes and dreams, our money, all of it, all, all of it is his. And then Paul says Jesus is supreme because he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now in Paul's day, uh, the image of the Roman emperor like, was everywhere. In the marketplace, on statues, on coins, hanging in gymnasiums, on jewelry, goblets, uh, lamps, in paintings, all, all over the place. Caesar, the Roman emperor, was lord of all. That's what he was called. He was called Lord. Uh, in Caesar, uh, it was Caesar who was called the son of God, lowercase g. Caesar was the one who was said to bring peace to the world. Everywhere you went in Colossian society, you would be reminded of the presence of the Roman Empire through these images. So given the overwhelming presence of these images everywhere, how does Paul encourage the Colossians to kind of get their minds and their imaginations clear? So, you know, get them sort of, you know, thinking about something else other than all of these images that are just present everywhere and it's it's a really good question for us given all the you know the stuff that we have to process every day whether it's on netflix or on endless social media posts or adverts advertising wherever we turn all the images think just think about all of the images that are vying for our attention and our loyalty day in day out how the heck are we supposed to deal with it all well paul says um, fill your mind, fill your imagination with, Je with Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And so we are to let his image dominate our minds and hearts. 
But you see how Paul, again, he doesn't attack the other images. He doesn't say, oh, go and you know, set fire to all of the pictures of the emperor. He doesn't say that at all. Instead, he just says, concentrate your thoughts on something greater, someone greater. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Fix your eyes. Turn your attention. Fix your gaze on someone greater than all of it. Let his image dominate our minds and hearts because he is the image of God. If we want to know what God is like, we just need to focus our thoughts and our attention on Jesus. Uh, many scholars believe that Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 20 is like, is like a worship song. And it's written to kind of ignite and stir our hearts in love uh, for Jesus. And these verses, they're written to kind of present Jesus as utterly beautiful and supremely attractive so that we are drawn to him. Okay, so Jesus is sufficient for all things. He's supreme over all things. Um, you're going to love this. It's another S. He's sustainer of all things. Uh, we uh, passionately pursue Jesus. We become fools for Christ because he sustains everything. Have a look at uh, 1 Corinthians, Colossians 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, Jesus is not only compelling and beautiful and attractive because he's sufficient, you know, he's enough. He's not only captivating and compelling because he's supreme, he's Lord of all. He's attractive because he sustains everything. He's compelling, he's utterly beguiling because he sustains everything. Jesus, you know, didn't just like wind up the universe and then just kind of set it off in motion. He, Jesus is actively involved in sustaining the universe, holding it up, holding it together. Jesus doesn't just make things as creator. Jesus sustains what he makes and he fixes and is fixing what is broken. He holds everything Together, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <laughs> is that my is that my warning light? Is that like it's like it's like time's up. So like time's so like time's time's up. Okay, okay, get off the stage. Get up. <laughs> I'm teasing. I mean, I I think it's, I should be off anyway. I'm finishing. I'm finishing. I'm I'm coming into I'm coming into land. And so, and we, you know, we are passionately pursuing Jesus. We become force for Christ, um, of course, because he's the savior of all things. Uh, in verses 21 to 23, the apostle Paul says this. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation goes on, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You know, would any of us say, you know, the truth is, uh, you know, there are, there are possibly some things about myself that I might need to change. You know, there are, there are some things about myself that I don't feel like I've got quite right, but I'd quite like to get right. And in verse 22, I think we read some of the two of the most hopeful words ever. They're like a lifeline. They're like a life raft in there, you know. Um, Colossians 1.22, but now. 
He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you've got an actual, like one of these, like, you know, an actual physical thing or some clever way of doing this on your phone, um, these are two great words to underline. You know, back in the day, you know, people used to like bring highlighters to church and stuff like that, you know, like highlight bits in your Bible and underline them and stuff like that. But whatever you do, find a way to to highlight those two words, but now. And Paul, you know, Paul kind of loves to do this sort of before and after thing. You know, before you were far from God, but now you're near to God. Before you were an enemy of God, but now you are his friend. Before your mind was dominated by a whole bunch of thoughts, but now Jesus has captured and captivated your heart. Paul uses these words, but now, everywhere in his letters. Romans 6, 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These but nows are two of the most hopeful words we can encounter. Just think of amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. When was our last but now moment? When was our last kind of, I used to be this, but now, by the grace of God and through the blood of Jesus, I'm this. Because in essence, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Any one of us who follows Jesus, we would have had at least one but now moment. And truth be told, we've probably had hundreds, if not thousands, turning points in our lives, both major and minor changes to who we are and how we do life as we surrender ourselves at the foot of the cross and then are transformed with ever-increasing glory into the image of Jesus. It's basically what the Bible calls repentance, a change in direction. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And just as we finish, my sense is um, we're going to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment, and then we're going to just make some space for the Spirit of God to kind of do what He wants to do with us. But it may be that the Spirit of God here this morning is um, inviting some of us to yet another but now moment. Or it could be your very first but now moment as you find yourself falling at the foot of the cross. And so as we pray in a few minutes, let's invite the Spirit of God to do what he loves to do, to search us and to know us, to see if there is any offensive way in us and to lead us in the way everlasting. Let's invite Jesus, uh, the one who is sufficient for all things, the one who is supreme over all things, the one who sustains all things and the Savior of all things to draw near to us, to search our hearts, and through his kindness, it's always through his kindness, through
through his love, through his mercy, his grace, accomplished for us by him on the cross to lead us to that place of repentance. This is kindness that leads us to repentance. This is kindness that leads us to that place of beautiful surrender where we put our hands up and say, I just want to be a passionate pursuer of Jesus. I will gladly be a fool for Christ. Why don't you stand?